how dad are you? How dad are you? I recently came across this fun questionnaire. You get a point for each statement you've said. Okay, so let, let's see how you score. Okay, how dad are you? Here's the first statement. Guess it's free then when a cashier has trouble scanning an item. Or found it after pointing a stud finder <laughs> on your chest. Okay. Or what about this? I'm not paying to heat the whole neighborhood when the door's open. All right? What about this statement? It's not heavy, just awkward <laughs> when carrying something heavy. What about this? Have you ever said this? What's the damage before looking at the bill? And then my personal favorite, looks like we have to amputate <laughs> when a child has a minor injury. <laughs> How did you score? Right? Six, so yeah. I believe I have said all of those, right? Anyone else? Uh, you know, we laugh, but that questionnaire, uh, it's a little bit revealing. And actually, it, it kind of gets to an important issue, an important question, doesn't it? When we consider what makes a dad, right? And that is this question that gets to the important issue of what does it mean to be a man? Better stated for our purposes this morning, how does the Bible define manhood? I mean, what characteristics make a man? Is it, is it just a certain sense of humor? Or is it something more? If, if one of the children of this church who I just prayed for, if one of them after the service, if they came up to you and said, hey, what does it mean to be a man? How would you answer? How would you define manhood? Since July of last year, we've been studying the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We've been working our way through this riveting book chapter by chapter. And providentially, this morning, our study in 2 Samuel leads us to 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 39. And I say providentially because on this Father's Day morning, our passage is all about manhood. This text lists and describes the heroic feats of David's mighty men. As we're about to see, friend, David, King David, as great as he was, as strong as he was, King David did not defeat his enemies and the enemies of God's people alone. No, he had help. He had actually lots of help. God in his kindness provided David with strong, valiant men to help establish and secure the kingdom of God at that time. 
And faith, this passage is intended to do more than simply honor the brave men who risked their lives for God's kingdom, though our text does in fact do that. It does rightfully honor these men. You see, Faith, I want to argue this morning that in this passage, in addition to these men being honored, we also get a portrait, a picture, a vivid description of biblical masculinity. This is to say, David's mighty men and how they're described in this text, they exemplify biblical manhood. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and, he says, training in righteousness. All of Scripture, even lists like the ones we're going to study this morning. And one of the ways, Christian, that Scripture trains us in righteousness is by giving us examples to emulate. And that's what we have here, I want to suggest, in 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 39. But that's not all. When we also take a step back to see how this text fits with the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, we are once again reminded, as we study this text, why we need the perfect son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to touch more on that in a moment. But to start, I just want to point out that here we have a list, a hall of fame, if you will, of David's mighty men. And again, as we're going to see, these men accomplished <laughs> uh, incredible heroic acts. As we've said multiple times as we've been working our way through 2 Samuel, the Bible is not boring the stories contained in these verses are incredible. And again, I want to suggest that as we look at these men and what they had done in the power of God, we see more clearly a picture, a portrait of biblical masculinity. And this morning, this is what I want to press in our hearts. This morning, I suggest and I want to encourage you that the application, this passage as we look at these men, presses upon us our hearts that encourages us to make is simply this, and that is do hard things for God's king. As we look at the life of these men, I believe this text is going to move us towards this application, and that is do hard things for God's king. Do hard things not for yourself, not for your own glory, not for your own praise, but do hard things for God's king. At the time of this writing, for the men described in this text, God's anointed king at that time was David. For us today, as we know clearly from the rest of Scripture, that God's true and final king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do hard things. Hard things for God's king. And this is, I want to suggest, one of the key characteristics of biblical manhood. Yet while this exhortation 
is directed towards men, to all the ladies here, this doesn't mean that you get to check out. <laughs> Nor does this mean that women are exempt from doing hard things. No, all, as, as God's children, all of us will face moments when we must do something hard and difficult out of allegiance to our God. That said, Scripture calls men in particular, though, to do hard things. Indeed, God places much responsibility on men. So how? How, how are we to do hard things? What does that look like? Well, I believe our text, there's many things we could say, but I believe our text highlights three actions we must take if we're going to do hard things for God's king. And these three actions help fill out our understanding of biblical manhood. Now, again, to be sure, this text isn't all the Bible teaches about manhood. There's much more we could say, but I do think this is a good place to start. Indeed, I, one more thing by way of introduction. I want to encourage us that this is something I think we all need to hear. Scripture's description of biblical manhood is not just something for boys and men. If you're a wife, here are the things, as we're going to work through this text, these are some things that you can be praying for your husband. If you're the mother of boys, here are the things you can be encouraging your sons to be. If you're the mother of girls, here are the things you can teach your daughter to look for in a man. And as a church, this is why we value men's ministry and women's ministry as a church. What we're about to look at, this is what we want all the men to aspire to be. So the first is this. How do we do hard things for God's king? Well, first, we must reject passivity. Notice how this text begins Follow along in your copy of God's Word. Turn with me if you, if you haven't already to 2 Samuel 23. That's page 276 in that paperback Bible. Follow along with me as I read verses 8 through 12. We read this. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Joshab, Bashabeth, a Tekinamite. He was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary that his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day 
And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shaman, Shammah, excuse me, the son of Agi the Herite. The Philistines gathered together there at Lehi, where, he, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. Notice the similarities between Eleazar and this guy. The attack comes, and what do the men of Israel do? Flee. What do these mighty men do? They rise up. Notice verse 12. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. The first thing we see here, if we're going to do hard things for God's king, if we're to follow the example of these mighty men, is we must reject passivity. The most embarrassing moment of my life happened earlier this year in late February. Would you like to hear about it? <laughs> it was right before I was about to leave for a short three-day trip. And actually, uh, the day started off great. You see, because I was going to be out of town for several days, I decided to take my four kids up to Indianapolis for the day. That would give me some face time with my kids while Stephanie could enjoy some time to herself before being on her own. Well, our fun day began with ice skating and hockey. That followed by a great and delicious lunch at our favorite restaurant, Portillo's. We followed that up with some shopping at the malls, and then we finished the day by bowling. Lots and lots of great memories were made. Well, on the drive back home, it was getting kind of late at night from Indianapolis, I called my wife and I said, hey, can you do me a favor? We had a great time. Instead of me coming all the way back home, would you mind just meeting me at the gym? You could take the kids home so I could just get a quick workout in tonight. She said, sure, glad to do it. Met them there and exchanged the kids. Well, once I got in the gym, after about my, my second set of, of doing the bench press, I, I started to, to feel just the slightest bit of cramping in my legs. Didn't think much of it. So I got some water and then I wanted to do another set. However, on my way back to the bench, my legs really started tightening up. So I got another drink of water and then sat down. Yet once I sat down, in addition to my legs, I started feeling my back and my fingers cramping to the point where like, my fingers were like this and I, and I had to go like that. Hey, have you ever had a leg cramp or a cramp in your fingers? At that moment, I decided to stand and walk back to get a drink at the drinking fountain. Yet when I did, my right leg cramped up and locked stiff like this. And there was absolutely nothing I could do. In, in addition to being in great pain, I could not bend my leg to get any relief. And immediately, I just fell to the ground, and I cried out, help. <laughs> One of the trainers was nearby, and he came over. He asked what he could do, and I told him, could you please, could you bend my leg back? 
I was in incredible pain. However, he couldn't bend it by himself. It was, it was so stiff and cramped up. So he brought over another guy. And literally with all their strength, they kind of bent me over. And they finally bent my leg back for a moment of small relief. They then lifted me up, got me seated, where I then sat for the next 30 minutes trying to calm my body down. But you see, while I was seated, every part of my body began to cramp. My back, my shoulders, my arms, my, my stomach. Well, just when I thought my body was starting to calm down, sitting there still for 30 minutes, I decided to get back up to go to get another drink of water. Yet when I did, my left leg <laughs> tightened up and cramped to once again I fell to the ground and cried out, someone please help me. <laughs> if the pain was bad the first time, it was like three times as worse the second time. Thankfully, this time, three guys came over and were able to bend back my leg. And again, once seated, I found my whole body wanting to cramp. And all this was recorded on the cameras there in the gym for all to see. It was one of the most embarrassing, was the most embarrassing and worst experiences of my life. And you know why that was? You know why I was cramping so much? It's because I was dehydrated. You see, amidst all the fun I was having with my kids that day, ice skating, playing hockey, bowling, rocking around, I failed to drink any water. I know, I know, that's bad. <laughs> Trust me, I've learned my lesson. In fact, let me just take a drink right now. <laughs> So as a result, my muscles cramped, and it took two guys to bend my leg back. Now, where am I going with all this? I am going somewhere with this. Notice what we read about Dave's mighty men, particularly Eleazar. Look at what the text says there in verse 10. The text says that he struck down the Philistines, notice, until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. You know what's going on there? He's cramping. Yet, whereas my body locked up due to my foolishness, his hand locked up due to his faithfulness to God's king. And interestingly enough, his experience is not unique. Historians tell us that in 1860, Sheikh Ali Ahmed's hand so clave to the handle of his sword that he could not open it until the muscles were relaxed by being stuck in a pot of hot water. A similar experience happened to a Highland Surge Sergeant at Waterloo. He had done such extensive execution with his basket handle sword that it took a blacksmith to release his hand from the sword. It was as if they were glued together. Look, it's one thing to get to cramp up due to negligence. It's another because you are faithful. And that is what we see with one of David's mighty men, Eleazar. 
His hand cramped tightly to his sword due to his faithfulness. And I want to argue, as this text illustrates, his faithfulness to reject passivity. In the passage I read, I want you to notice how the author contrasts the passivity of Israel with the actions of these mighty men. Did you notice that? Notice in verse 9, the men of Israel withdrew, Eliezer rose up. Then in verse 11, the men of Israel fled from the Philistines. Well, Shema took up his stand. And friend, let us not miss this important point. The testimony of these mighty men illustrate a key feature to biblical masculinity, and that is it rejects passivity. To do hard things for God's king means you must reject this. And I say reject because, listen, as sons of Adam, men, as sons of Adam, we have a strong pull to be passive, do we not? Our temptation, like Adam and Eve in the garden, is just to stand by and not engage. Our tendency is to be like the men of Israel and to to retreat and withdraw rather than to lean in and engage. In fact, Christian man, are there any areas in your life where perhaps God's spirit right now is pressing upon your heart where you are being passive? Are there any God-given responsibilities that you are avoiding? When it comes to leading your family spiritually, are you being active or passive? When it comes to discipling your children in the faith, are you being active or passive? I remember several years ago at one of our men's meetings, we were discussing this and the great idea was suggested for some of the men that they were going to stop having their wives read the Bible to their children. So that way, the dad would. And it was a great conversation because in that moment, many of the men realized that they were abdicating their responsibility to lead their family spiritually. Not that it's, of course moms can read Bibles to their kids. Men, when you, when you come home from work and you see that your wife needs some help with something, are there some kind of household chore to be done? Do you engage? Or do you avoid it and instead check out? When a job needs to get done either at home or at work or even here at the church, take care of it right away or do you sigh and try to avoid it? Faith, biblical manhood rejects passivity. This is why in our home, we frequently tell our sons, we say, men do hard things. When each of my sons started asking us, you know, what does it mean to be a man? Typically around age three, we would tell them this, men do hard things. In fact, we still say it. And we do so because we want our sons to cultivate this habit of rejecting the Adam-like tendency to be passive. Look over there, boys. There's a hard job. 
Let's do it. Let's not go play and put off. No, there's something hard. Come on, let's go do it. Faith, our culture, and this is, I think, self-evident, our culture has enough weak, passive men who are self-indulgent, enslaved to their appetites. Men who are just lazy. As those redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, by his grace, let us not be like them. Let us be like these mighty men. So I'd encourage you to look for ways to cultivate the habit of rejecting passivity, especially in the small everyday moments of life. But there's, there's another application here that I don't want us to miss, and that is found in verses 10 and 12. Have your eyes fall there. I want you to notice in verses 10 and 12, amidst all the great heroics of these mighty men, notice the accent falls on the work of the Lord, doesn't it? Twice the author says it was who that brought about the great victory? The Lord. You know what this means? And I'm going to show you this throughout the scripture. This means we ought to view all of our triumphs, men, all of our triumphs as gifts. Everyone in general, but men in particular, we must recognize this important truth. Just as the Lord was behind all the victories in this text, so too, Christian man, he stands behind all your accomplishments. I mean, what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? He says, what do you have that you do not receive? Right? Christian men view all your successes as gifts lest you turn them or yourself into an idol. So to do hard things, you must reject passivity. The flip side of this is then to accept responsibility. And that's the second thing we see here. To do hard things for God's king, you must accept responsibility. Look at verses 13 through 17. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So, so, so David is, is away from Bethlehem. He's, he's not near where he wants to be. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. Do you see what these men did? D David, in a... In a in a sense of, of homesickness and longing to be where he wants to be in the land. He, he longs for some water. And what do these men do? They're not ordered, but they break through the garrison. They go to where the enemy is and they go and they get the water and then they safely bring it back out. And they bring it to David. But notice his response at the end of verse 16 there. But he would not drink of it. 
Instead, he poured it out to the Lord and he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. You accept responsibility. In the 1986 cinematic masterpiece, The Three Amigos, <laughs> there is a scene where Lucky Day, Dusty Bottoms, and Ned Needlander are traveling across the hot desert absolutely parched. And pausing to quench their intense thirst, Lucky Day goes to take a drink from his cantina, but when he raises the cantina to drink it, only just a small drop of water comes out. Next, the camera pans to Ned Needlander. And when he raises his canteen to take a drink, water doesn't come out, but dry dirt pours out into his mouth and his throat. Exhausted and parched, they then look over at Dusty Bottoms. And to their amazement, when he lifts his cantina to be drink, gallons of fresh, cold water come pouring out. Dusty not only drinks to his fill, but then he washes his face with the water and rinses his mouth and spits it out. <laughs> and then when Lucky Day and Ned Leaner are about to pass out from the intense heat and exhaustion and thirst, what does Dusty do? Completely oblivious and insensitive to their needs, he then tosses his cantina on the ground where the rest of the water pours out on the rock-hard desert floor. Do you remember this, anyone, the scenes? And if that weren't enough, then to add insult to injury, Dusty Bottom then turns to, to them, his companions, and says, lip balm, right? <laughs> anyone remember this scene? Okay. Now, as a child of the 80s, when I read this text, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Because isn't that true? At first glance, it appears as if David, King David, is just as oblivious and insensitive to his men as Dusty Bottoms, doesn't it? Because what does David do when the men bring him water from Bethlehem? Like Dusty Bottoms, he pours it on the ground. However, faith, this was not an act of waste but an act of worship. You see, David cannot believe the risk his men just took. Sure, the, man, the men handed him water from Bethlehem, but as David makes clear in verse 17, to him, that water represents the blood and the sacrifice of his men. Blood belongs to the Lord, thus David dare not drink it. So David poured it out before the Lord, not because it was trash, but because it was treasure. And this is what I want you to see, Faith. You know why David was handed water in the first place? You know why he was handed water in the first place? It was because his men accepted responsibility. And you know what responsibility they accepted? It was the responsibility to please their king. 
Notice how clearly this point is made. David did not command these men to go. He did not order them to go and do this. No. Rather, being sensitive to the desires of their king, they risked their life to please him. And Christian, like those mighty men, please hear me, you too have a responsibility. You know what that responsibility is? To please your king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear, does he not, in 2 Corinthians 5? What does he say in verse 5? I have it up here on the screen. He says, so whether we are at home or at away, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim what? To please him, just like David's mighty men made it their aim while they're away to please their king. Then a few verses verses later in verse 15, Paul writes, and he, Christ, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christian, you have a responsibility. You do. To please your Savior. The question is, are you living for yourself or are you living for Him? In fact, let me ask you, what would it look like for you to strive to please your Savior at your work? What would it look for you to strive to please your Savior in your marriage? How would that change the way you relate to your spouse? Men, how would this change the way you speak to your wife on the phone? I'm appalled at sometimes how rude and short and harsh men are when talking to their wives on the phone. How about with your parenting? What would change in the way you discipline your children if you strove to make it your aim to please Christ? And if I could be very candid with you, whenever there's a conflict in a marriage or a family for that matter, you can take it to the bank you can be sure that those involved are not accepting their responsibility to please their king. Rather, as James 4 tells us, what is underneath all that conflict is a desire to please self. So faith, my encouragement, again, drawing from the example of these mighty men, is for you to make your king's desire yours. Jesus' desire is that you would live for him, not yourself. Indeed, as this text illustrates, even if that requires risk. And then lastly, to do hard things for God's king requires leading courageously. Look at verses 13, or I'm sorry, 18 through 23. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zerah, was chief of the 30. So there's three mighty men, then there's these additional 30 men, and Abishai is the chief of these 30. 
And notice what we learn about him. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name besides the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So he was great, but not as great as the first three guys. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. Men, how would you like that to be written on your tombstone? What an awesome thing to say. Here was a valiant man, a doer of great deeds. And notice what, it, what we said. He struck down two aerials of Moab. Just want to let you know, we have no idea what those are. <laughs> we don't, but it sounds impressive. Notice, and it gets more impressive. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. I, I find that, that phrase just so curious <laughs> that the author just decides, you know what? And as we're about to see, this, this Egyptian might have killed the ladies with his looks, but he's going to be killed here in a moment. Because notice, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down with him, went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of his hand, the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not obtain to the three. And now notice, he's set in charge to lead a group. So Abishai, the group of 30, then notice this guy was set to be over his bodyguard. On uh, February 6, 2018, farmer Bruce Grubb got the scare of his life. Late that evening, he went to check in check in on his 200 pregnant cows. Yet when he did, to his horror, he found a tiger sitting among them. Grubbs immediately called the police, explaining that there was a tiger on the loose on his property. In addition to his personal safety, Grubbs was worried that the tiger was going to kill his cows. I mean, think of the investment and the money he would lose. So after he called the police within minutes, six cop cars, including an armed response team, arrived. The police also checked with local wildlife parks in case any animals had escaped. So with, imagine this, with the tiger surrounded, six cop cars, the cops began calling to the tiger trying to get it to move. Yet after 45 minutes, the tiger remained motionless. At this point, Grubbs decided to take a closer look. So he got in his truck and he pulled up, started driving slowly in between the cows towards the tiger. And when he got within a few feet, it's at that moment that he realized that the tiger was actually a stuffed animal. At first, Grubbs was relieved but then he was embarrassed. How would you feel in that moment? <laughs> Cops believe the tiger to be a prank, though no one's owned up to it yet. <laughs> no, no, 
Now notice what we read about one of these mighty men, Benaiah. Listen to this. It appears intimidation was not in his dictionary unless it was something he himself did. Because notice, unlike Grubbs, who was afraid a tiger would harm him and his cattle, this guy actually stalked lions, not vice versa. He walked right through the snow into that pit and he had it out with the lion and he was the one who came out of the pit, not the lion. And then notice when only packing a club, he went one-on-one -on -one with evidently this handsome Egyptian <laughs> who had a spear. But this is what you have to understand. Spears at that time, they were not used for throwing. So it wasn't like the guy threw the spear and then he picked it up. No, this is, this is illustrative of this man's incredible craft and skill in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He got the spear from the guy and then killed him. Yet amidst all the feats of this man and the other mentioned, we ought not overlook the fact that there's a certain order to this list. This final group, notice, was called to lead others. Did you catch that? We see that about Abishai and then this guy as the leader of the bodyguard. And what I want to suggest to you, Faith, is that when you really consider the actions of these men, in order for them to do such valiant and noble deeds, they needed to learn how to lead themselves. There's no way this guy was going to learn how to craftily take the weapon from an enemy and use it back on the enemy if he was a lazy, undisciplined man. There's no way that Abishai was going to win a war and kill 300 men if he was just lazy. No, these men learned to lead themselves. And here I think is another trait of biblical manhood. You lead courageously. That is, you lead yourself in self-control. You lead yourself in managing your work. You lead yourself in spiritual discipline. Like I said, none of these guys could have done this had they not led themselves in the self-discipline to master their craft. We could say it this way. Their exploits in battle were the fruit of their ability to lead themselves. And by way of application, men, is there any area in your life you're failing to lead, not only yourself, but others? How, how are you at leading your family in the things of the Lord? How are you at leading yourself in the things of the Lord? Now, the rest of this chapter lists several more mighty men. However, I'm just going to tell you right now, it's much less exciting. There are no exploits. It's only an honor roll of David's elite. It's simply their name. And then often, right next to it, is the, the city or the town of origin. And, and you can see as you read through it that most of these men are from Judah. And most commentators think this is because David selected these mighty men while he was ruling there at first in Judah. 
But I want you to notice how the chapter ends. Look at verse 39. Notice the last name of the list of the mighty men. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Now, now wait a second. That sounds familiar. That sound, have, we heard, have we heard this guy before? He has, he has a wife. What's her name? Say it like you mean it. Okay, Bathsheba, right? You know what the mention of Uriah does? Many things, but one in particular. It reminds us that amidst David's greatness, amidst David's great mighty men, that David is still not the final promised king God mentioned in 2 Samuel 7. For the mention of Uriah recalls David's sinful failures. I mean, just think about it. In Uriah, you have a man who did not betray his king, but was betrayed by his king. All this, this failure, it directs our gaze towards a future and perfect son of David, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, David needed these men to help him. Today, we need God's King Jesus to help us, to help us do the hard things he calls us to do. Friend, the good news of King Jesus is that King Jesus has perfectly succeeded in every way that we have failed. Whereas we all have fallen into passivity, Jesus rejected passivity, perfectly obeying God's commands. Whereas we all have disregarded our responsibilities, Jesus joyfully accepted his responsibility to do the Father's will. And whereas we have abandoned our leadership, Jesus, even now, leads his bride, the church, by building it up. You see, friend, as God's true king, please hear me, Jesus did the ultimate hard thing. And you know what that was? It was by going to the cross to die for sinners, sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. We all are owed for our sinful, passive, self-exalting ways. Jesus died on the cross to forgive those who have forsaken their responsibility to live for their God. And Christian friend, please hear me. The only way that you can do hard things for God's king is to first believe that God's king did the hardest thing for you. Dying in your place and being raised from the dead so that you could be forgiven and brought into the kingdom of God. Friend, have you done that? Have you forsaken your self-reliance? Have you forsaken trusting in your own righteousness to eradicate this sin debt you have owed, you have, a, you have grown? What are you banking on to be received by God for all eternity on the other side of death? There's only one thing, and that is faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? If not, let today be the day of salvation for you, friend. Look, I don't know how dad you are, 
But I do know that all of us are completely lost without Christ. So may today be the day of salvation for you as you confess your sin to him and believe his work is sufficient to save you. And then for those of you who do belong to God through faith in Jesus, let us strive to do hard things for God's king. By his grace and the spirit's power, may we reject passivity, accept responsibility, and lead courageously. Amen? Let's pray.